Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. But if you take these substantive program failures that she has alleged, you can really look and very granularly see Here's one way our program might go wrong. Welcome to Compliance into the Weeds. In this episode, Tom and Matt take a look at a recent whistleblower retaliation lawsuit filed by a former J.P. Morgan employee, Shaquala Williams. We consider it from the lessons learned of why inconsistent risk assessments and lack of coordination on third-party information can prevent the compliance professional from having a single source of truth which they can communicate to the business units. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today we're going to take up the uh, complaint filed by uh, Shaquala Williams against J.P. Morgan alleging uh, whistleblower retaliation. So, Matt, uh, first of all, uh, welcome. And uh, I would normally say what caught your interest in this story, but this story is so unique in terms of the deep level of detail in the complaint. Uh, of course, it was going to catch your attention. So uh, why don't you walk us through the background facts? Yeah, sure. I, I suspect that this uh, complaint caught a lot of compliance officers' attention. So the background is that Miss Shaquala Williams was a fairly senior level compliance executive at J.P. Morgan, probably the largest and most well-known bank on Wall Street. Uh, Ms. Williams worked there uh, running the third-party risk management program for J.P. Morgan for 16 months from mid-2018 into late 2019, while J.P. Morgan was under a non-prosecution agreement for its princeling scandal, which, if any of you can remember, uh, in November 2016, J.P. Morgan agreed to settle FCPA charges, paid $264 million in penalties and uh, disgorgement, um, and it had a three-year non-prosecution agreement with the Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission. So that agreement ran from November 2016 to November 2019 for this princeling scandal where J.P. Morgan was... Uh, hiring children of high-ranking Chinese government officials to curry favor with them. Uh, And Ms. Shukwala Williams arrives in uh, 2018. She was a vice president in the Global Anti-Corruption Compliance Team. Her primary duty was to prepare monthly reports for senior management on various corruption risk indicators. She also ran the bank's third-party intermediary compliance program. Her first task when she started in 2018 was to review that program for its effectiveness, and she then found, uh, she says, numerous problems in the compliance program. We can get into those. And then Ms. Williams claimed that when she raised those concerns to senior compliance executives at J.P. Morgan, she suffered retaliation. She was eventually fired in 2019, and now she has filed this uh, whistleblower lawsuit uh, in court against J.P. Morgan under the SOX Section 806 
uh, whistleblower retaliation provisions. Um, and Tom, to be clear, I don't necessarily know, I don't have any extra insight into whether the retaliation itself that Ms. Williams alleges, is that true? Is it not true? Is it somewhat true? Who knows? I don't know. If anyone from J.P. Morgan wants to drop a dime and let me know, I'd be curious. But I thought what was interesting about this complaint was the really in-depth detail that Shaquala Williams included in explaining the internal control failures she claims to have seen. So for the rest of us in compliance world, if we want to make some use out of this case here, we could think these compliance program failures she is alleging, well, what are they? If those were true at any organization, how would that come to pass? What are the lessons we could take away from these sorts of problems if they're true, except I'd, I'd really have no extra insight into if they are true or not. J.P. Morgan has not commented on this lawsuit, which was only filed about a week ago. And uh, that's the background, Tom. So, Matt, with that, the thing that intrigued me, uh, both in her complaint and in your blog post, which, of course, we'll link to in the show notes, were uh, her alleged uh, deficiencies in the Morgan program, but also really, it seemed to me, Matt, this provided some excellent lessons learned for the compliance professional to at least consider in their own uh, compliance program, particularly around third parties. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll just kind of jump right in because uh, there were concerns around the uh, governance of third party intermediaries, and not that there was a lack of controls, but there was a control override, which allowed intermediaries uh, to be accepted into the uh, J.P. Morgan uh, pool, but there didn't seem to be a recordation of these exemptions and really even a kind of a master list. What did you see in that? Well, I I thought that was the big point that uh, compliance officers could take away. If you were reading the allegations in Ms. Williams' complaint, you know, she does talk a lot about the that there were third-party uh, intermediary policies or governance, but occasionally the the bank would deviate from those policies, and they had no documentation about when are we going to deviate, why are we going to do that, how would we explain the rationale for exempting some third parties, and so that's really the big issue here is that there is a lack of documentation about what you're doing. There was a process, apparently, but occasionally the process would be put aside and there was no documentation about when would we put it aside. So very specifically, for example, um, there were occasions when J.P. Morgan, Miss Williams says, would sometimes exempt certain third parties from their usual third-party intermediary controls. Well, Nobody would ever document what was the rationale for those exemptions, um, who approved those exemptions. Sometimes there was no record of that. Uh, were these exemptions applied maybe inconsistently? That is another complaint that Ms. Williams has. But all of this is around the idea, Tom, to you said, you can have policies and procedures, and you can have occasions when management should override those, but... If you aren't documenting why you would override it, if you're not documenting when an override might be necessary, then really it's just the override is a fancy word of saying management's arbitrary about putting internal controls aside from time to time. And I think that's the big thing here is lack of documentation 
increases the ability for management just to arbitrarily decide to do something else. And that's what you have to look for. Well, it's interesting that uh, you thought this was, uh, if not the highest concern, a very high concern, because I read read it a little different. So perhaps we could explore some of the others. I was uh, a little bit uh, worried or concerned about the, the lack of invoice controls. And mm-hmm. uh, I would say that because that shows where your outflow of money is going and where potentially a pot of money could uh, congregate to to be used for nefarious purposes such as to pay a bribe. But that seemed to me to be, if correct, uh, a substantial issue and one that I think every compliance practitioner might just want to revisit internally to make sure that there are invoice controls. Yeah, I think that the invoice controls is a great issue. And one of the reasons why, you know, in a perverse way, I really like this lawsuit is because we often talk about the need for invoice controls, but we rarely talk about what would those controls actually be. And Ms. Williams has some allegations about what those controls were or what they were supposed to be but weren't in practice, and you really get some good vivid detail there. So she is saying that there wasn't any requirement for the compliance group to review invoices for red flags or any other high indicators of high-risk indicators of corruption. Uh, They exempted many third parties from those invoice requirements, and again, without documenting the basis to do so. So we are back to exemptions without any documentation of why we decided to do this, or is this in accordance with what we think we can occasionally do? It's just an arbitrary exemption of some third party from the invoice controls. Um, There were no controls to assure that the entity requesting the payment was the same third-party intermediary that had contracted with the bank. Uh, There was a lack of documentation about uh, was this third-party capable of providing the services that the contract said? Are the prices offered commensurate with uh, local going rates? And all that other stuff that we have seen in the Justice Department's FCPA resource guide, they have a whole section on third parties, and they have a section within that about documenting what is this third party? What are they supposed to do? Can they actually do it? Are they charging you a reasonable rate? And Ms. Williams was saying all of the controls and documentation you would have in place to do all of that, she's saying that is not what J.P. Morgan had. It was just a very loosey-goosey approach, and sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't, and there was no rhyme or reason to determining which third party would or wouldn't be subject to those controls. Matt, the next point you raised, I thought really raised a larger point that I'm not sure we really talk about enough in compliance. And it wasn't that J.P. Morgan did not take a risk-based approach or have a risk ranking, but that the risk ranking itself was done inconsistently. And that the reason I say that's not talked about enough is uh, if you have multiple compliance professionals utilizing a standard risk ranking, you still may have individual eccentricities or individual assessments within that risk ranking, which could could lead to inconsistency of the overall risk ranking. So I was wondering if you saw that as as a potential issue, and is that something that uh, people at least need to consider? Well, I, I think this is a very interesting point because, yes, it is something all companies should consider, but it is particularly something that banks are well acquainted with, is the idea of applying some sort of governance and oversight 
to the models you use. And a risk control matrix would be such a model, and it should be validated somehow. And a bank should know that. That is a big deal when a bank has a whole bunch of risk projection models that it's using and nobody's actually checked to see, do these models make sense? Is the data we're pumping into it, is that data accurate? Um, and if a bank is not doing that, like that's that's something. Now, other companies might not have as sophisticated an understanding of risk management to think through that model governance is an important thing. But a large bank will, you know, they'll have a vice president of model governance and a whole function of it, you know, and I know people who have done this job. Um, So, but what she was saying wasn't really that JP Morgan didn't take a risk-based approach to evaluating its third party. The problem was it took multiple risk-based approaches to its third parties. And you would get different people using different models to come up with different rankings for third parties about the risks that they provided. And there can be a real danger in that. Um, So apparently, according to Ms. Williams, any risk control matrix or other models that you might cook up in Excel or whatever other technology you're using, but all of these models, they are supposed to go for review to a dedicated function within J.P. Morgan. And she said that that did not happen. Um, And that was in violation of the bank's own internal policies and in violation of the agreement that J.P. Morgan reached with the Securities and Exchange Commission, where they did say, we will take a risk-based approach. But apparently, according to Ms. Williams, the model was also supposed to be available for inspection to the SEC. And she's saying it wasn't shown to the SEC. And by the way, there were multiple models. So which one was which and who used what on what day? There's ambiguity in there. And then suddenly your risk rankings are wrong. And once those kind of inaccuracies creep into your analysis, you have the consequent problem of now your reporting is also wrong to senior management, to regulators, to other people. Uh, Your risk mitigation steps, you know, that's also gets thrown off. So I do think that this is one of those fundamental errors or issues that you should pay close important, uh, should pay uh, close attention to. We'll have a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Matt, the next point you raised seemed to me to point to either uh, the hyper-siloed nature of the J.P. Morgan system or uh, some other issue that we have talked about on Weed's podcast before, and it it was the client list screening group uh, did not have uh, access to or insight or report on third-party intermediaries. When I say that question... Initially, I would say, well, of course, they don't have access to that information because they're screening two different types of groups. But it seemed to me your point was those two groups are so siloed, they're not talking to each other and they're not reporting consistent information to the regulators. That, that is exactly what Ms. Williams is alleging here, is that J.P. Morgan 
hadn't connected its third-party intermediary compliance systems to the uh, other part of the bank known as the Client List Screening Group. And that group ran the anti-money laundering function where they would screen customers and other third parties to see if they were on any sort of AML watch list. But uh, the compliant anti-corruption compliance group could not kind of cross-reference or connect with that to find out that we have a third-party intermediary here who is also popping up on the AML watch list. There, there wasn't a connection there, so Ms. Williams says. And I think that drives home the point that it's really a distinction without a difference when you start talking about an anti-corruption risk versus an AML risk for a third party. The risk is the third party, period. Now, maybe it has a corruption risk. Maybe it has an anti-money laundering risk. It probably has both, because if you're sketchy in one way, you're probably sketchy in a bunch of ways. But if you are so siloed that you can't figure out that a third party might be on one or the other sort of risk lists uh, because you have divided systems or they're not connected or networked somehow, that's just not contemporary with the modern threat. You know, like the the federal regulators are not going to care that you really were good at one type of risk analysis for third parties, but you were terrible at it at another, (coughs) or that the left hand and the right hand didn't know what was doing. It's about, is this third party a good business partner, period. And that's where the breakdown was here, according to Ms. Williams. Matt, I wanted to go through each one of those in some detail because it seemed to me that they were building towards an observation uh, that you had uh, near the end of your blog post, which to me was this uh, allegations in this lawsuit presented the biggest problem, which was keeping third-party oversight isolated from other business functions. And I'll get to the money shot in a moment, but it, it really seemed to me that that was the message that compliance officers need to hear uh, to start looking at some of the details in the lawsuit to test their own programs. Uh, once again, I know we've talked about siloed natures of compliance programs before, but this seemed to me, with the level of detail in this lawsuit, to present some pretty good examples that a compliance officer could benchmark against. I think that's true. Uh, I would maybe say there's two different strands of uh, problem here in this complaint, and one of them is what we're talking about, is that the compliance function is isolated or it exists in parallel to several other types of compliance functions. And really, you might as well consolidate them all because it's about if your company is behaving ethically and are you managing third parties ethically. It is not that you are checking all of the watch lists for your third parties, but you're not checking to see if one cranks up on one watch list but not the other because it's so cyclic. Enough, people. It is about is the third party valid or not? And um, the way to get to that is to really bring the compliance program into all of the third party oversight as much as possible and not to have a separate AML and a separate third party anti-corruption program. Um, But the other strand of this that I think people should also keep in mind is more on the mechanics of the compliance program itself You know, on one hand, here's Ms. Williams saying, yes, the compliance program was isolated. On the other hand, she's also saying they didn't document anything. And whether you're in a silo or you're blended in with everybody else, if you're not documenting your policies and procedures and when you might deviate from them, then you're taking an inconsistent approach 
to your risk management and your third-party oversight and your compliance risks. And so whether we want to talk about the, is the function isolated or is the function haphazard because they're not writing anything down to document, you know, that's where you could probably look to pull out the good threads from this complaint and then try and judge your own program. Those, those are the two. Well, actually, I have to disagree with you on that, Matt, because I thought the money shot was a single source of truth. Oh, yeah. And the, the single source of truth is critical so that uh, the board of directors, senior executives, and certainly the chief compliance officer and the compliance function can have visibility across the business lines so that they can make proper assessments uh, based upon a disciplined process with written policies and procedures to guide them. So it's it really seemed to me that you were leading us down to the money shot, and uh, I really read that as as uh, the key takeaway from this complaint. Well, let me put it this way. I thought one excellent implication of what she was saying here is that by applying policies inconsistently, uh, they were reaching bad conclusions, and therefore the reporting was off. And the way that your inconsistency in documentation, in policy and procedure, can then shoot holes into your reporting. I think that is a very good point for people to keep in mind. So now you've got bad reporting to regulators that can have all sorts of trouble. You can have bad reporting to your board or senior executives. That can also lead to bad decision-making, or it could lead to the board saying, what idiot brought this incomplete report to us, and then you're fired. So there's another implication there. Um, But, you know, you get to that inconsistent reporting in a couple of different ways. Certainly the duplication of risk control matrices is one way to do it, but the inconsistent reporting or the inconsistent documentation also means a lot of stuff. It's not like there was a single source of truth or multiple source of truth. There was no truth, period. There were a bunch of uh, third parties, according to Ms. Williams, who weren't vetted or they were exempted and we don't know why they were exempted or they didn't submit any invoice. uh, They weren't subject to invoice controls and we don't know why. So you're looking for a single source of truth. You just see this big black hole of mystery. Um, And then from there, you can't get your reporting right. So now you're passing off inaccurate statements to senior people who are going to be making decisions based on faulty data. And like we can go down that road all day long. There's, it's not ever going to take you to any good conclusion. Matt, we uh, often review uh, enforcement actions or other inf- information from the regulators. Here we have information in a complaint, and we'll once again say these are allegations. Nevertheless, I really found this instructive for the compliance professional to think through, you know, there's some things we can look at at little to no cost to see if maybe we have a problem. So I found it a a really interesting exercise, particularly the way you walked us through that. I think so, too. And like I said, we have no real visibility into the uh, veracity of these allegations or the retaliation against Ms. Williams, which I'm not really going to go into because I don't know anything about it. But if you take these substantive program failures that she has alleged, you can really look and very granularly see Here's one way our program might go wrong. Are we sure that we are not making these kind of mistakes that she is saying happen somewhere else? Maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. But your own exercise of 
having a gut check of your compliance program against these potential failures, that's a really useful thing, and I would recommend people give it a try. Well, Matt, uh, another great episode in, in the can. I look forward to seeing what comes up next week. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I'm going to link to Matt's blog post in our show notes, so check that out for additional information. I'd also like to tell you about the latest edition of the Compliance Podcast Network, Design Thinking in Compliance, where with my co-host Karsten Tams, we take a look at the social engineering tool of design thinking and how it can create greater efficiency and effectiveness in your compliance program. So check out Design Thinking in Compliance. It posts every other Wednesday. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.